Hello, my name is Caroline, and if I sound exhausted today, it's because I am. You are listening to the Fuck a Diet podcast. This is a podcast about diet culture, Um, and that's really all I have to say. Today, I'm going to be answering questions that I gathered from Instagram over the past couple weeks. I'm also going to talk about um, this thing that I drafted up uh, to explain anti-diet stuff and fuck a diet stuff and health at every size stuff to a doctor who was curious about it. So I'm going to start there and then I'm going to get into the questions. But before I do, I just want to tell you that last night, the reason that I'm so tired is because last night I watched 10 episodes of Normal People which is a show on Hulu. I don't even know if I, I'm not going to even explain it for the people who haven't watched it or for the people who don't know. But if you have watched it and you're curious what I think about it, wait till the very end of this episode because I'm going to finish the last two episodes in between recording this first part of the podcast and recording the very, very end. Um, so I can give you my full read on it. But basically I was told that it was going to take over my brain and ruin my life and break my heart and it hasn't, but there's still time. So I'm reserving comment and judgment until I finish the last two episodes and I will talk about it at the end. Okay. Okay. If you have you know, if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know I love TV, I love stories, and I talk about it all the time. And also on my Instagram as well, I talk about TV all the time, for better or for worse, it's just the way it is. Also, if you're new to this podcast, it's very casual, and um, its casual nature has uh, garnered many haters, and I think you should just be warned in case you become one of them. I know what I am. I'm a mess. Actually, I'm not a mess. This podcast is sometimes a mess though. Okay, so this is what I wanna talk about today before I get into the Q&A. So I went to the doctor. I went to, let me find, I have this all written out. Okay, okay, so this week I had an appointment with a cardiologist because my dad has a heart condition that can be genetic and so they wanted to screen me for it. Um, I don't have it, which is nice. I mean, there's always time. It's I. It's called like a thoracic. No, 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 no. That's another thing I'm dealing with. That's a back thing. Never mind. Never mind. No, it's called a. Damn it! He sent it to me. It's it's basically an aneurysm in his heart valve that if it grows bigger, um, he needs surgery and it can be genetic. So they screen me for it and I don't have it. Thoracic is a whole other spine thing, as you probably know that I also am going to the doctor for because I am trying to see whether I should get a breast reduction or not because I've had humongous boobs my whole life and back pain and headaches and neck tension among a million other things. And so that's also what I've been going to the doctor for this past week. Totally different. My brain just switched the words, but I think there is, hold on. I just have to see what he said. I'm going to go to my dad's text to me. See, this is a perfect example of how my podcast is messy. People are like, who cares about your dad's stupid heart? You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What? It is thoracic. What? Shining light on thoracic aortic disease. What the fuck? Thoracic. Thoracic. So it means both things? Oh, related to the thorax. That's weird. That's really, really weird. I got an echocardiogram for thoracic aortic disease, also known as an aneurysm. And I also got an x-ray on my thoracic spine. Weird. So I'm not stupid. My brain actually knew what it was saying. Okay, Great, so that's what's been happening with me. It's been a lot of doctors and hospitals while there's a surge in COVID and it's like bad timing, but I've also waited nine months for this and so you just do what you have to do. Okay, what, okay, this is what I wanted to tell you. So my doctor, this cardiologist who was doing the echocardiogram on me and saying everything looks normal, he eventually, 
after being me being in the room for a long time, asked me what I did. And I was like, oh, great. I don't want to get into it. Because, you know, it is polarizing. It, it is a polarizing subject. And you don't know where people stand with anti-diet stuff. Especially a doctor, especially a heart doctor. And so I'm always like, oh, God. I was like, I'm a writer. What do you write about? I write about diet culture. And he seemed very interested. Um, He also said that he was interested in hearing more about it. He was like, well, you know, I'm often put in the position of telling people to make changes to their diet. um, But I know that that's not my area of expertise. You know, I prefer the more clinical. I prefer echocardiograms and, you know, that that diagnosing basically um he also said that he was rat he used the word atheistic about diet and he said that he was aware that you know different things work for different people and you know he was seeming pretty like he was seeming open to it he was not coming at the subject from a um you know seeming to have like a really strong opinion though he still might so basically he said he wanted to learn more about it and to potentially talk about it at a later time. And I was like, okay. And then I got stressed. Um, so I went home and I didn't know when this conversation was going to happen. It hasn't happened yet and it might never happen. But I wanted to put together something that I thought might get through to him or other people who are sort of in his position who are genuinely curious about disordered eating and diet culture and the nuance there because my answer was I was like well all I said to him in the room was you know I I've you know had disordered eating and I really do think it's a blind spot for us and for a lot of people and in healthcare and obviously there's nuance you know I I have to be like soft that's how I think the best way to get through to people is is to be soft when you can um, if you want to open up someone's mind to another way of looking at things. I said, obviously there's nuance, but I, I do think it's a blind spot. And, and I think, you know, people don't really have a lot of literacy, literacy around disordered eating and don't realize how rampant it is when, especially when they're just telling people to go on diets, you know, it, it can have consequences. That's all I said. Um, but I wanted to be able to kind of if he really did want to know more, I wanted to be able to draft up something to either send him or say that would sort of meet him where I thought he might be as a doctor um, in a generally pretty weight-centric culture and healthcare system. Okay, so this, I'm going to tell you what I drafted up, um, but the reason that I, I had to, you, you would think that I already had it, right? You'd think that I'd be like, okay, just read my book. But I understand that people are in different places and need, like I figured my book is, is very um, humor-based and it definitely has science, but it's doesn't, it's not heavy, 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 heavy on the science. It's more experiential. So I didn't necessarily think that telling him to just read my book would necessarily be the best way to get my cardiologist on board, if you know what I mean. Um, And I do get nervous when doctors or anyone deep in the medical field asks me what I do because I don't know how deeply indoctrinated they might be in fat phobic and weight centric beliefs and paradigms. And I assume that they probably really are um, because most are very entrenched. And if I don't approach it from a very specific way, I feel like people will just wave off everything I say as extremism or wishful thinking. So I was trying to figure out where I should even begin to get through to him or to any doctor who's never heard of this before, basically. And that was my question. So this is what I drafted up. Um, If he ever reaches out (laughs) for more info or uh, if anyone else in, in a similar position does. Okay, so I started with saying or writing that the biggest thing that I should say and start off with is that we have a problematic way of approaching weight in the pursuit of health or in the pursuit of improved health. 
because there is this assumption that weight is just a simple calorie math equation and that is not accurate for lots of people who have naturally higher weight set ranges. Now, even just throwing that out might throw someone off. If you hear groaning, it's Molly groaning next to the microphone. Stop groaning, Molly. So, you know, just saying, you know, we all have weight, you know, weight set ranges is something that I don't even know, you know, without looking into it further. So I have more stuff that I link to below to kind of explain this and go further into it. But I, you know, that that in of itself is something that a lot of people don't even understand. So I said it's inaccurate that weight is just a simple calorie math equation, especially for, well, for everybody, but specifically in our case for people with higher weight set ranges genetically or because of underlying health issues or, or whatever. And that belief that weight is just a simple calorie math equation leads to a dysfunctional way of approaching weight and weight loss and often leads to a dysfunctional relationship with food that will ironically lead to poorer health outcomes long-term. So that's my opener. That was my opener. Now, I think a lot of people who are very, very entrenched might say, I don't believe you and I don't like this and I don't want to read anymore and that's fine. But anyone who is a little bit open, which he sounded like, maybe he would read on. Okay, and then I continued. This hyper-focus on weight is a cultural issue for first and foremost, but health habits can and do change people's overall health for the better. And that often will come without any change in weight. And when there is a change in weight long-term because of better health habits, it's usually because the dysfunctional relationship with dieting and often binging in response to dieting has been healed. So again, this is just like the most basic overview I could give to somebody who I felt was slightly open to it, but unfamiliar with it. And then the the last paragraph says, there's a lot of talk about people having a food addiction, in quotes, or sugar addiction, which doesn't actually have data to back it up. In fact, studies that show food addiction actually starve and restrict the subjects, rats, beforehand, and then the rats act food addicted. And it lights up pleasure centers in the brain that also light up with things like hugs and playing with puppies. So the addiction part is actually the consequence of the restriction. Simply, restriction leads to something that looks a lot like food addiction and then often starts a vicious cycle. Another issue is the lack of fluency around the social determinants of health, as well as how much weight cycling up and down and up and down and up and down, not weight alone, accounts for a lot of health issues. And weight cycling is a direct result of attempted weight loss because usually, you know, the data shows that almost always the lost weight is regained and then some in the, you know, one, two, three, four, five year mark after weight loss. And then you try to lose weight again and then it just goes up and down and up and down. Or it just keeps going up and up and up because your body's like, stop. Okay, so then I linked to, I linked to the nutrition journal And this is open access. You can read this, the whole thing yourself, and I will link to it in the show notes for this episode. It's by Linda Bacon and Lucy Affermore, who are both the authors, the co-authors of the book Body Respect that I also really recommend. It has a lot of science, a lot of weight science. So I linked to it, but I I very, because this was a cardiologist, I specifically, I downloaded the PDF of this, which you can also do, and I searched it for the term heart. And I copy-pasted all of the things that were specific to heart health. And I am going to read them to you because I specifically found these for this cardiologist. But hey, may as well read it to you too. Okay, now I'm going to be using, this is a triggering term for some people because it is a very stigmatizing, pathologizing term for higher body weight. The O word, the word obese that is very flawed and problematic but is used in this article because that is what they are they're essentially talking about the issue with the paradigm itself but have to use the word in order to address it especially in mainstream scientific 
journals. Okay, so it says, this is a quote from this, this nutrition journal, open access, basically internet article, but it's a nutrition journal. You can read it too, but I'm just gonna read you little pieces. Obese people who have had heart attacks, coronary bypass, angioplasty, or hemodialysis, I don't know if that's how to pronounce it, live longer than thinner people with these histories. Another thing that I copy-pasted, weight cycling, which I mentioned before, going up and down and up and down, that most chronic dieters do. You can also call it the yo-yo, but it's the weight part of it the weight yo-yo. Weight cycling can account for all of the excess mortality associated with obesity in both the Framington, sorry, Framingham heart study. All of these things are linked in the journal too. So if you want to read what they are what studies they're referring to, it all can be found in this linked nutrition journal. Um Okay, so weight cycling can account for all of the excess mortality associated with obesity in both the Framingham Heart Study and the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. It may be, therefore, that the association between weight and health risk can be better attributed to weight cycling than adiposity fatness itself. Here's another quote. Additionally, it is well documented that obese people with hypertension live significantly longer than thinner people with hypertension and have a lower risk of heart attack, stroke, or early death. Rather than identifying health risk as it does in thinner people, hypertension in heavy people may simply be a requirement for pumping blood through their larger bodies. Another quote, there is extensive research documenting the role of chronic stress in conditions conventionally described as obesity associated, such as hypertension, diabetes, and coronary heart disease. These conditions are mediated through increased metabolic risk seen as raised cholesterol, raised blood pressure, raised triglycerides, and insulin resistance. The increase in metabolic risk can be Oh, can in part be explained by a change in eating, exercise, and drinking patterns attendant on coping with stress. However, changes in health behaviors do not fully account for these metabolic disturbances. Instead, stress itself alters metabolism independent of a person's lifestyle habits. Thus, it has been suggested that, that psychological distress is the antecedent of high metabolic risk, which indicates the need to ensure health promotion policies utilizing strategies known to reduce rather than increase psychological stress. And then I would just add that the, that the implication there, and maybe it even goes on to say this next, I, I don't even know because I copy and pasted it and put it in my notes that dieting and weight stigma and all things associated with diet culture greatly increase psychological stress. So that is this vicious cycle here. And that is why diet culture is so problematic. It literally feeds itself. I then told him that I recommend the book Body Respect by Linda Bacon and Lucy Aframore, Anti-Diet by Christy Harrison, and the fourth edition of Intuitive Eating by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Rush. I thought that it would be more effective for me personally not to recommend my own book to a doctor, but also, you know, admittedly, the books that I just mentioned lean into the science a little bit more. Mine is a little bit more conversational, experiential, and, you know... What did I say? I said my book, (laughs) this is what I wrote, just in case I was sending an email. My book is fine, but it's part humor and it's a little dumbed down to give a fun, light intro to the subject. Now, if you're listening to this and you're struggling with your relationship with food, it's actually a very comprehensive how to get out of it. But for the doctor that wants a why what I'm doing is not helpful, I would say that there are other books that have even more science but mine does too so just if you haven't read it I actually think that my book is a really great intro and then if you want to dive deeper 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 into all of the science there are other books you know to follow up with so that is what I would send to a doctor 
who wasn't really on board yet, but showed a little bit of interest in being on board personally. Now, you may be surprised to hear that I'm not like out there yelling about this to my doctors and any doctor that will listen, but I actually prefer to sort of just lurk in the background and talk to people who already get it because I find it very, very stressful to to try and convert somebody who is fully unwilling to. I have no desire to go through my life just creating conflict after conflict because, you know, if I actually thought that that would be an effective way to get through to people, maybe it would be a different story, but I really don't. I really don't think that's the best best way to get through to someone. I think a strategic way of like entering the crack in their mind that is ready to be a little bit open as opposed to trying to like hammer down the parts that aren't. I don't know. And I will have all of that written out in the show notes of this episode if you want to use it to do a similar thing with your doctor or people who you feel are very entrenched or people who you think would benefit from hearing an intro to anti-diet stuff in that way. Um, There are many, many, many ways to kind of intro this depending on who you're talking to. And I do think that it depends on who you're talking to and it depends on how open they are. I think that people who are fully not open, uh, I think there's very little that we can do, unfortunately. Um, I do think people need to be willing to consider another way. Um, And then depending on where they are or what they already believe or what their job is or what their experience has been, there are different ways of effectively starting that conversation and um it is more an art than a science i would say and it's hard but i will i will have all of that in the show notes so you can copy paste it or send the blog to somebody um because every episode i have is also associated it has an associated blog post on my site that is the show notes so if you are listening on a on a podcast app and you like click for more details that's where you see the show notes it's actually also a blog post on my site so next i want to answer some questions that i gathered from instagram a couple weeks ago i i got through some of them on a previous podcast episode but not all of them so i'm going to continue but before i get into those i want to tell you that this episode is brought to you by your empowered life with juliette sakasagawa Juliet is a certified intuitive eating counselor and empowerment coach. She works with her clients virtually, both individually and in groups, and she is passionate about helping you finally make peace with food and your body. She works from a body positive and health at every size perspective, of course, to help you relearn to trust and listen to your body. Juliet would love to join you on your journey of learning to nourish your relationship with food and exercise discover your authentic self, and free yourself from diets forever. Also, in addition to intuitive eating work, she also offers self-care and relationship coaching. Juliet can help you create a life of joy and fulfillment, reduce stress and overwhelm, discover more peace and calm, enhance your relationships, and move into the next chapter of your life smoothly and easily. You can follow her at Your Empowered Life Coaching, on Instagram or visit her website at julietsak.com for more information about her coaching and intuitive eating services. The other sponsor of this episode is brought to you by my desire for more sweaters. Now, on my Instagram, I've talked a lot about how I, over the past couple years, have gotten a little bit complacent with my clothes and I didn't have any cool pants. (laughs) All of a sudden, I was like, whoa, skinny jeans are not that cool anymore. And everyone's wearing cropped pants and cropped flares and cropped wide leg and wide leg and boot cut. And the early 2000s are in again. And I don't know where to even begin. But I have Stitch Fix, which I actually really like because I genuinely don't enjoy I was gonna say grocery shopping which is also true I genuinely do not enjoy um clothes shopping 
I think it's not fun. I think it's stressful. And I would just rather be sent clothes that I can try on at home and then send them back easily if I don't like them. Stitch Fix is really amazing and they are not sponsoring me. (laughs) But I do have a code that you can use to get $25 off your first purchase. And you know what? It also gives me $25 off my next purchase, which means if I get enough people to join Stitch Fix with my code, we all win. And maybe I get some free sweaters out of the deal so I can be warm in the winter while my ankles are freezing trying to be trendy. So if you go to thefuckadiet.com slash stitchfix, it will automatically reroute you with my code, giving you $25 off your first order and giving me $25 off my next order. Now here is how Stitch Fix works. You put in your style preferences, your sizes and all different things. Like for instance, I have a different size shirt than I have pants because of my fucking boobs. And the sizes go up to 3X. Um, So there's a lot. And they also have maternity. They have kids. I don't know if they have men. You can figure that out for your... Oh, they they do have men. That's good. That's good. Um, And then you can get your fix as often as you want. And or you can have it like I have it on auto every three months. And then they send you clothes and you can even let them know what you're looking for. Like going into the winter, I'd bought so many um, new pants trying to be cool that I was like, you know what, actually at this point, I just want a lot of cozy sweaters. So that's really what I want you to send me. And they sent me a lot and I kept most of them. And then the ones that you don't like, you just put in the prepaid package and you drop it off at the post office and you're done. And it sends them back and you don't need to think about it further. I really do like it, especially when I tell them what I need and what I don't need. And they learn more about you the more you um, communicate with them and the more you tell them what you've liked and what you don't like of what they send you. You can tell them what kind of um, pricing you want to pay for different things. So they'll send you cheaper things or more expensive designer things. I usually choose somewhere in the middle. And uh, yeah, I really like, I mean, I genuinely like Stitch Fix and I genuinely want to get some free sweaters so if you would like to try out Stitch Fix if you hate grocery shop <laughs> I keep saying that if you hate grocery shopping or clothes shopping you should try Stitch Fix um, if you hate grocery shopping try Stitch Fix no obviously this is I w- <sighs> okay you understand what I'm trying to say seriously they are not sponsoring this podcast I literally just want to get a couple $25 off for my next thing so go to thefuckadiet.com slash stitchfix. It will automatically take you to stitchfix with my referral code. We both get $25 off. What is better than that? Um, yeah, I want more cool clothes. And um, I think we all do. All right, back to the Q&A. Back to the, or let's start the Q&A. I guess we haven't even started it yet. So the first question I'm going to answer is related to what we were talking about earlier, doctors. So somebody asked, what do I say to doctors when they get diet culture Now, this is hard because again, I mean, you heard me, like when my doctor wanted to talk about it, I was like, oh God, oh God, I need to go home and prepare. It's, it's hard because we know how polarizing it is. We know that if if they're not willing to be open to it, it's going to be really frustrating and potentially really triggering and and hard and stressful and hurtful. And it sucks. It really sucks. So this is one thing that you could say, and I also have this in the show notes if you'd like to copy paste this. Please don't talk about diets and weight with me. I've already dieted for years and I developed disordered eating. Now, I do recommend, this is me talking, not you talking to the doctor. I do recommend working with an intuitive eating dietitian if you need more guidance with all of this. But even if you're not, you can lie just to sort of get them off your back and say, I'm working with an intuitive eating dietitian. And if you're interested in more information on how I'm approaching health, I have information that I can send you. But it's really not healthy for me right now to focus on weight or restricting food at all. So... 
if you like your doctor and you want to keep your doctor and they keep getting diet culture with you, because obviously one thing I could say is get a new doctor, but I understand that that's easier said than done. I feel like kind of, you know, giving them legit reasons that they might be more um, inclined to listen to is your best bet. So basically saying, I have already dieted. I've already done all the things you're talking about. I have disordered eating. I'm working with someone specialized in this. So you don't need to say anything else. Meaning you, doctor, don't need to tell me how to eat because I'm already handling it. And I understand that doctors will often bring up weight and health when you are not in a small body. And so there is a lot of stigma and judgment that is often coming from them. And I know that's really hard to feel. And I know that, you know, if you tell them I have disordered eating, they're probably going to assume that people in larger bodies have quote unquote binge eating disorder and they need to go on a diet and stick to a diet better. But um, if you can just kind of like end the conversation with, I've already done all of that. It was not good for me. I'm now head on addressing it. Hopefully that will both kind of have them back down and also maybe have them become a little bit interested in what you're actually talking about. But again, I know it's really difficult. Um, I know that that's a kind of confrontation that not a lot of people are comfortable with and uh, it's just hard. Like it really is hard. Um, So I... I really, I really empathize. But the other great thing is to get a new doctor if that feels possible for you. So here's another question. Doctors who insist on taking your weight and, and you know, what to do when that's really, really triggering. So here's the thing. Sometimes doctors have to record things for insurance and weight is one of them. And this is a huge flaw in the system. Insurance is flawed on so many levels. Um, but it's not always coming from a place of them wanting to judge you in your weight. Sometimes it's just something they have to mark down. And if you refuse, they have to mark down that the patient did not comply. And that is something that you can absolutely, absolutely do. You can, you know, you can refuse. Um, you have every right to refuse unless there's something very specific they need your weight for. But it's a very rare thing that they would genuinely need your weight for. So if they're just recording it for insurance and you feel comfortable enough, you can tell them that they can take it for insurance, but you do not want to know what it is because you are healing disordered eating. And they should understand. If they don't, that might be a sign that you need to get a new doctor. Because the other option is that they can just write down that you did not comply or that you refused to be weighed. Um, but again, if at all possible, if you feel that your doctor is really, really, really entrenched in diet culture and it feels possible for you to find another doctor who may be less entrenched in diet culture, I do recommend trying to find a new doctor. All right, here's another question. They asked, I'm getting into a snacking and grazing rut, but I feel better with bigger meals. What do I do? Now, there is no right or wrong way to approach this. So what what is sort of implied in this question is that my body feels better when I eat bigger meals. But I'm now in a habit of snacking and grazing. What do I do? Is it going to trigger me to kind of encourage myself to stop snacking and grazing and eat bigger meals? I feel like that's the implied question. Like, am I allowed to force myself to start eating bigger meals so I feel better, so I stop snacking and grazing? And the answer is yes. You're allowed to experiment with that. I would encourage you to, especially if you're really sure that it that bigger meals really do make you feel better. You know, schedule and plan and cook and make and eat some bigger meals and see how you feel, see how that affects your desire to, to snack and graze. Now, you know, when you say it makes me feel better, you're not really telling me how, do you mean digestive wise? Do you mean energy wise? I'm not really sure um, what you mean. And I'm not really sure how swayed this could be by other things. 
But I feel like, you know, sometimes when people start healing their relationship with food, they almost become anxious about um, doing anything that will... It's almost like you go to the other extreme of anxiety, like, oh, I have to like really let myself do anything that I want and anything my body wants. And if I don't, then I'm kind of destroying or, or halting the process. And while there is truth in that, um, you know, it is possible to to go to the other extreme. You are allowed to experiment with the way that you feed yourself. You're allowed to eat big meals and snack (laughs) like you're allowed to to do both in fact you're encouraged to do both so I would say if you really feel better whatever that means if you really genuinely feel better in your body when you eat bigger meals eat bigger meals and then see what happens um if you're early enough in your process and in your recovery you'll probably be eating big meals and consistent snacks and you also might do that for the rest of your life too that i think we have this assumption that if we eat big meals we shouldn't need to snack um and if we snack we shouldn't be having big meals and that's just diet culture so <sighs> eat bigger meals see how you feel if you still want to snack in between you're allowed to do that I don't know if I'm actually answering the question that you asked, but based on how I interpreted the question, that's my answer for you. Okay, the next question. I have a lot of repressed anger during recovery. How do I handle it? So in general, we have a lot of repressed emotions and anger is absolutely one of them. And you absolutely might want to and need to work through these repressed emotions with a therapist. But one of the things that I talk about in my book in the emotional part is how important feeling is. How important coming back into our bodies and feeling what's in there and being willing to sort of sit with the discomfort of being a human and all of the stuff that we try and avoid with all of our coping mechanisms especially eating disorders. I mean, I really, really see disordered eating and eating disorders and especially the desire to just shrink and shrink and shrink as a manifestation of not wanting to be in our body, not wanting to have to feel because our emotions are in our body, like physically in our body. And we spend a lot of time not wanting to feel at all and doing anything we can to not have to feel and anything we can to sort of not like we literally take our consciousness and our like physical awareness out of our bodies and and we go up into our brains where we just overthink things to death and so I I do think that there's a lot of overlap between eating being willing to gain weight and take up space in our bodies and honor our intuition and honor our hunger and honor our relationship with our bodies and feeling and feeling what it feels like to be a human feeling what it feels like to have a body feeling what it feels like to feel all of the things that we didn't have the capacity to feel in the past and I think that that's a huge part and I also think that it's really normal and understandable for there to be a lot of anger especially if you've spent your life you know, trying to conform in this toxic and dysfunctional way and and realizing all of the time wasted and all of the horrible things that people have said about your body as you gained and lost weight. There are a million things to be angry about, you know, across the board when people are going through this process. So, you know, I really, I, I think that it's absolutely not unusual to have a lot of repressed emotion and repressed anger during recovery and the answer is we need to feel like there's there's no way to press a button or to say a mantra or to like reframe everything to get rid of emotions that have already happened in our bodies that we weren't willing to feel I feel like um, mental reframes can potentially um, help us avoid future anger. Like if we have a different perspective on things, we may be less likely to get angry over certain things going forward. 
though anger will always happen no matter what your mindset is and i genuinely think anger is a is a like a warning signal for us that something isn't right or our boundaries are being encroached on or we've been wronged and need to stand up for ourselves i think anger can serve us in a lot of ways but generally if we have a lot of pain sadness anger fear that in the past we used coping mechanisms to suppress those emotions are still in our bodies and we have to feel them or they will continue to run the show by trying to express themselves um, until you feel them and process them because that's how emotions work so i hope that's helpful there's more in my book if you haven't read it already and feeling is very 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 important for healing and health and also especially healing from disordered eating so the next question is i have a fear of not being attractive to my husband and they say so what do i do about the fear of not being attractive to a husband or a partner now i don't have a husband or a partner (laughs) so i'm probably actually not the best person to ask but if you were going to ask me and wanted my answer I would say that the healthiest thing to do is to communicate your fears if you can and if you feel comfortable. And if you don't feel comfortable, I think that's something to be curious about as well. Communicate your fears. Communicate what you're about to go through or what you're going through with your relationship to your body and your relationship to food. Talk about what you need. Talk about what you need to do with food and with weight. Talk about the fears you have about how it will affect your relationship and the way that they see you. Otherwise, you'll have this deep buried fear that will wreak havoc on your relationship from the dark. And I know that that's easier said than done, but I think there are a couple things that you can just take stock of. If me saying communicate your fears feels like an impossible thing, I mean, that is the first thing to be addressed. Why do you have a fear of communicating with your partner? And if you don't, I think communicating and being very clear about what's been going on with you and your relationship to food and body and what you need and what you're afraid of will really help the process. It'll help your partner be supportive of you if they are the kind of partner that would be supportive of you. And if you have the kind of partner who won't be supportive of you, that's good information too. I mean, that's hard information, but that's good information because, you know, that's not necessarily a healthy situation for us to be in. And I know it's easy for me to say, I understand it's very easy for me to say that, um, but it's all important information to have. Next question. Is it okay to eat for comfort? This is the answer. Yes, 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 yes. That's how many yeses. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's how many I wrote out. Yes. In addition, a very important part of this, so like eating emotionally and eating for comfort, I think is like the most ridiculously demonized thing ever. And it's because we're so afraid of weight and weight gain. And we have all of this fear mongering around food and pleasure in our society. So that's one thing to be aware of. The demonization of eating for comfort is ridiculous. And ironically, Again, just like diet culture feeding itself, it feeds itself. The more demonized and forbidden eating for comfort is, the more it will be this thing that we seek out and and almost use as a quote-unquote drug. Because the more normalized food is and the more normalized our relationship to food is, the less likely you will eat for comfort in a way that's destructive in the first place. The more forbidden and guilt-ridden food is for you the more often you put yourself on diets the more um you know either metabolically suppressed you are or hungry you are or you know constantly going through that diet binge cycle the more we are wired to be fixated on food rewarded for eating food and essentially act like a food addict because that is how we are wired for survival. We are wired to seek out food and get extreme pleasure from food when our bodies don't feel like we have 
consistent access to food. So having this guilt around comfort eating and then usually when we have guilt around it, we will say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be better tomorrow. That is like a mini diet binge cycle, right? Where we're like repenting for the food that we're eating. And then, you know, the last thing we want is for food to become even more sort of quote unquote addictive to us. But that is what happens when we demonize emotional eating or comfort eating in the first place. So that's something to keep in mind. It, just like so many things that I talk about, it's just this big paradox that the more you fear it and the more you demonize it, the more it will rule your life and, and almost become the self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like, well, see, I am a food addict. I can't control myself, but it's actually being perpetuated by the dynamic that we're in in the first place and you know this cultural fear of food and gaining weight and all this stuff. And it runs your life. Okay, here's the last question I'm going to answer today. Instead of binging, I'm hoarding food. Is that normal during the fuck a diet? So again, I think the implied other part of this question is I've just started trying to heal my relationship with food and I'm not binging like you said I might or that you like you said, you know, is common, but I am hoarding food. Is that normal? The answer is yes. That is another very, very, very normal and common response to scarcity. That is your way of assuring yourself and your brain that you have ample access to food when you need it. And, you know, I actually think a lot of people who go through this process need to have ample food stores so they know that they can eat anytime they want to or need to and that in time as you continue to go through that this process of refeeding and normalizing your relationship to food that need will dissipate and it's actually just very normal protective there's nothing wrong with it it's completely logical it's exactly what would happen in any sort of food scarcity situation um we're just little squirrels <laughs> essentially and so there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And I think that it's something you can just kind of like be aware of and be like, wow, this is my brain's way of trying to protect myself from future diets that I might be putting myself on or future famines, which is what my body has always thought it was. And notice in time, you know, check in in a year and see if you're still doing it as much because my guess is that you you won't be. All right. That is all I have for you today except I'm going to pause this recording I'm going to go live my life I'm going to take my dog for a long walk I'm going to try and edit some of my book because I need to send back my first round of edits on my second book on Wednesday Ugh. and then I'm going to watch the last two episodes of normal people and then I'm going to hop back on here and I'm going to tell you what I think. And it might not be that profound because I really thought it was going to kind of get inside my brain more than it has. But maybe it's because I was watching the show with my friend and we were drinking wine and having little weed edibles and eating pizza and having a running commentary the whole time. That might have been like an actual nice buffer between me and the depressing nature of the show. But we'll see. I'm going to watch the last two episodes on my own and I will let you know. Okay, I finished it. And let me tell you, because I had been so warned that it was going to break my heart and mess me up, I was on guard. And I did not let it break my heart because I knew every time. In the very last episode, I was like, oh, they're so happy. This is lovely. They're at Christmas. It's New Year's. It's all working out. But I kept saying, no, 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 no. I know there's only five minutes left, but I know this is not going to end well. And so I am prepared. I knew not to get complacent. And here's the thing. If I hadn't known and I just watched it out of the blue the entire time, I would have been rooting for them to get together, stay together and be happy together. And in the end, I would have been really sad, really sad, really sad and depressed and angry probably. But I knew, I knew 
to not expect that and therefore it didn't hurt as badly and so I'm okay and that's all I need I just need to know this is not the love story that I want it to be and then I can temper my expectations and come out um, not destroyed and so I'm not destroyed though who knows I'll probably dream about it tonight and wake up crying but not now the other thing is you know I know it's realistic I know it's real life but I don't there's a part of me that's like why did you have to do that he doesn't have to go to New York he doesn't need to go to an expensive master's program in the most one of the most expensive cities in the world just to be a writer a two she could easily have gone with him for a year or easily have said we're going to do long distance for a year and we're going to be fine why why not why not i just honestly it almost felt like forced conflict why if there had been a reason if she'd had a job in dublin that we knew about okay fine but still just do long distance for a year don't be dramatic about it for no fucking reason made me mad it was stupid I get that it's real life, but it doesn't have to be. So give me a break. Also, should I cut bangs? Okay, no, I shouldn't. My hair, my skin, too oily, shouldn't do it. Done it a million times, never worked out. Have a cowlick. It is a disaster. I always have high expectations, high bang expectations, and I'm always let down. And I just explained this on my Instagram earlier today. When I had bangs in college, I would be mid-evening at a bar with my friends and I would go into the bathroom to use the bathroom, notice that my bangs were oily, and I would wash them in the sink with hand soap. And I would emerge with wet bangs that looked pretty much the same as when they looked oily. And in 10 minutes, bam, clean, non-oily bangs it was the only way all right thanks for listening i will be back in two weeks and i hope you have well i guess there's really nothing happening in between now and then so i hope you have a good life between now and then i really really do and i hope that if you watch normal people you brace yourself and just know that um you know They're going to try to make you cry and you don't have to cry if you're prepared. Goodbye.